Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Delton. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, the Center for Behavioral Political Economy and the College of Business at Stony Brook University. His research is at the intersection of political science, evolutionary psychology and behavioral economics. Topics include collective action and public goods, generosity and redistribution, voting and political mobilization, partisanship, risk and time preferences, and emotions such as anger, compassion and shame. And those are some of the topics that we're going to cover today. So Dr. Dalton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Hey, thanks so much, Ricardo. I really appreciate being invited on. Okay, great. So, I mean, let's start with this. Let's talk a little bit about politics. And in politics, people talk a lot about welfare, the welfare state. And uh, in evolutionary theory, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, I mean, those kinds of disciplines, uh, there's also the concept of welfare, uh, for example, applied to welfare trade-offs. So, mm -hmm. what is there any major distinction between how we think about welfare uh, in a political context and how evolutionary theorists think about welfare? Yeah, uh, great question. So, I've done I've done research that's um, related to kind of the you so you used the term welfare. There's kind of um, at least two different senses of that word they're kind of closely related so let me let me start with the more the more general sense of the term welfare which when we use it that way all we're, we mean is like the, in the in the most broad sense how are you doing how you are you hungry are you happy are you fed uh do you have what you need to live do you have what you need for a good life um so uh you know if you have kids you're probably concerned with their welfare in this general sense are they are they warm? Are they closed? Are they fed? Are they going to school? Uh, those kind of things. And uh, evolutionary psychologists like myself um, and many of my collaborators, I'll, I'll list a few, but it's probably I'll probably forget a few people like John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, uh, Daniel Sneeser, uh, Aaron Lukashevsky, uh, Aaron Sell, um, all people I, I've worked with on this topic um, of what we call uh, a welfare trade-off ratio. And the, let me first really quickly say what that means, and I kind of, I'll back up and give a little bit more of a broader setting for it. Sure. So the idea with a, a welfare trade-off ratio is that um, when, we're, when we're thinking about whether to help somebody or whether to harm somebody, when we make those decisions, it usually feels fairly you know, in easy, intuitive, straightforward. Like uh, if a friend asks you to house sit for them and watch their dogs, um, usually you just think, oh yeah, sure, that's fine. I, ha I have the time to do that this week, no problem. And that our hypothesis is that kind of intuitive ease is actually um, underwritten by a, uh, a complex series of calculations going on inside the head, most of which aren't necessarily going to be rising to the level of consciousness. So they're not necessarily things um, that you can explain to somebody, but are actually happening. They're literally computations going on in your head that determine how and when and why you're willing to be generous or to be uh, spiteful, maybe, or to be harmful uh, to somebody else. So let me. So that's the kind of the basic idea that we have this this set of programs in our head for doing this. So let me let me back up to give you the, the little bit of a bigger picture uh, of why we think that's the case. 
Um, so, you know, those of us who've been working on this research um, are, I think you've had, you've had a lot of interesting evolutionary psychologists, some of my friends on this program actually, so maybe they've, they've covered this um, with you. Um, we in evolutionary psychology try to marry um, evolutionary biology with modern cognitive science. And so part of it is looking to our ancestral past to see what kind of problems did our hunter-gatherer ancestors have to solve. But then the other part of it is um, trying to figure out what would be the kind of program that would have evolved to solve that. So taken seriously, there needs to be something in the mind that actually does this problem, um, that actually solves this problem for us. And so welfare trade-off ratios, by hypothesis, are this thing in our heads um, that it, we use, our minds use, to decide whether to help or to hurt somebody and how much to do so. Mm -hmm. And do these welfare um, welfare uh, ratios or welfare trade-offs translate directly into more or less support for welfare policies in modern societies? Because I would imagine that yeah. the societies we live in nowadays are very different from the ones we evolved in. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so along with some of, so I, I've never studied that directly, although we can kind of piece that together in a couple different uh, steps of research. So um, with uh, colleagues, Daniel Sneeser, Peter DeSoli, and Tess Robertson, um, we've done some research on the emotion of compassion and its relationship to social welfare views. So in this case, the word, like I'm using the word welfare in its political sense. So the more, a little more narrow sense of the government providing to you things like just cash or in-kind transfers like maybe housing or you know public services, things like that. Um, and so when it comes to social welfare, we were interested in how the emotion of compassion um, predicts whether people will be in favor or not uh, of social welfare. And so, um, it, so what we showed is, and I, we can come back to the specifics of this, but basically, um, the more compassion people felt uh, towards somebody who had lost a job recently, the more that also predicted support for that person um, getting access to social welfare benefits. And the reason I say there's kind of an uh, indirect link between uh, welfare trade-off ratios, this kind of cognitive variable, and then the political angle of social welfare is we have that research that looks at the emotion, just having people report compassion, showing how that predicts um, social welfare. And then in other research with some of the same uh, co-authors, we kind of look not at political attitudes, but just how do, what is the underlying kind of art, uh, program logic of compassion? And one of the things we find that is that compassion does seem to be an emotion for changing the value of this welfare trade-off variable in our head. So when you feel compassion for somebody, um, that turns up this variable, basically. And uh, if that variable is turned up, then you're more willing to uh, help, help them or to advocate for help for them. So there does seem to be at least this indirect link between this kind of um, general variable we have for deciding how to help or harm others up through uh, emotions like compassion, to the political sphere, like influ uh, influencing our opinions about things like social welfare. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, you talked about compassion. Are, is there a list or a set of cues that people uh, become aware of that, that induce 
compassion in them. I mean, are there certain kinds of needs that we've evolved to pay attention yeah. to in other people, and those are the ones that produce compassion? Yeah, good question. Um, so we've we've studied two different cues, and both of them you could you could lump under a general term of need, and that's not something unique to us. A lot of researchers have said we feel compassion when somebody is in need. If people are needy, then you feel compassion for them. And we've tried to break that apart. What does it actually mean to be in need? And we think, I don't, this is not necessarily exhaustive, but we think there's at least two different routes uh, towards being a needy person. And so in our research on social welfare and compassion, we kind of examine how these two different routes to being needy are kind of independently ways that people end up feeling compassion. So one of these um, would be um, kind of uh, you're generally in a position of vulnerability or uh, un being unable generally to provide for yourself. So for instance, the most obvious case would be young children or you know small animals or uh, elderly or other vulnerable populations of people. They're just kind of in a steady state of not being as able as a standard adult human uh, to provide for themselves or care for themselves necessarily. So someone who's in that kind of state um, is going to elicit compassion. And that might include also um, people who are, you know, long-term have been relatively poor. So if you've been without work for a long time or you've been making a very low salary for a long time, um, that's one route to compassion, this kind of steady state level of need. But another route that we identified, and I think this is maybe the more novel element of this research and the kind of needs we're looking at, is a, a sudden dip in your current state. So in these studies, the way we did it was had participants imagine a person who had lost their job and then found a job but at a lower salary. So we could see like how far did someone fall from where they were to where they are now. And what we found is that independent of where they started or and of where they ended, this difference also was a big predictor of how much compassion people felt and how much they supported uh, whether that person should have social welfare. So it's really these two separate things, a steady state um, effect on need, like are you just generally in a poor condition, then you elicit compassion. If you fall in far, that also uh, elicits compassion. And then one, one final interesting thing about that is both those kind of make sense, but they can lead to a bit of perhaps inefficiencies in the way we view who should and shouldn't be, uh, uh, you know, have access to social welfare. Um, because if you're in a really poor, steady state, someone can fall, but fall very far, but still be above the person who's at the steady state. And this person who fell a long way might actually end up eliciting more compassion and being seen as more entitled to social welfare than a person who is in some objective sense, just always doing worse. Um, so. That's kind of an illustration about how our, our evolved intuitions um, might not always lead to the most efficient outcomes in you know, a modern mass society. Mm -hmm. So uh, would there be any form of evolutionary mismatch in modern societies in terms of welfare? Because, I mean, when we talk about the welfare state in modern mm -hmm. societies, it's something that benefits mostly strangers. I mean, people right. that we don't know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, would there be any evolutionary mismatch there in terms of how we think, uh, how much we should give in terms of taxes that then mm -hmm. is invested in people in need? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I mean I think a big a general mismatch is going to be that our our intuitions for compassion and for care in times of hardship evolved for uh, relatively small scale groups. Like generally, you know, you're going to have 10, 20, 30, 50, maybe 50 adults. Uh, I'm just making that number up. The exact number um, is up for debate, but you know, it's going to be relatively small. It's not going to be on the order of millions. When the group is small, when the locus of care and compassion is small, it's easy to monitor each other and see, well, sure, you know, this person is um, sick now, but when they're not sick, I see them helping other people. And you can actually tell, um, you know, whether people are kind of keeping up their end of a kind of implicit social contract with the rest of the group. In a modern society, it's easy, as you mentioned, it's easy to see how uh, for many people it can, that can, without that kind of connection, um, there can be a disconnect between our intuitions and what the, the, the larger structure that we might be interested in or, or not interested in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's, so that's one, I think, um, the, the, the number of the huge difference in the number of people and the inability to, to monitor each other. Uh, and also, I guess one way you see this too, is that um, people support for welfare programs uh, often depends on whether uh, the recipients of it are seen as cheating the system or legitimately in need, which are uh, the kind of cues our mind evolved to use in a small scale context, but may be difficult to ramp up in a society of millions. Mm-hmm. Do people try to free ride on public goods? I mean, is that something that occurs frequently or does it depend perhaps on the social, political mm-hmm. context or even on individual differences, for example? Yeah, um, so I, my own view would be that, uh, you know, most people most of the time are, are maybe not necessarily trying to free ride on public goods, okay. but our minds are prepared for this kind of omnipresent possibility uh, that some people might be doing that. So it's not necessarily the case that everybody all the time is on the ground looking for ways to exploit others, but the possibility that there are some people trying to do that leads us to be you know, on the lookout for this, to be potentially suspicious of people who might be contributing less uh, than others. And, and the reason for that is if, you know, over evolutionary timescales, if um, free riding would essentially destroy cooperation. Like if, if, if we did, weren't on the lookout for free riders, we didn't take steps to exclude them from the benefits, then cooperation wouldn't exist. So that makes us, in some ways that probably makes us kind of paranoid about that. There may not be too many actual human beings at any given moment who are trying to do that, but the threat is very severe because it can crash entire cooperative systems. Um, so people are nonetheless very sensitive to this possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that one of the strategies people resort to to deal with free riders is moralizing them. So how mm-hmm. do people go about that? Yeah. So when I use it, when I've used that term in talking about free riders, what I mean is kind of a, a constellation of responses to them. Yeah. So it can be things like directly sanctioning them. Uh, you know, for instance. If we're part of a you know semi-formal or formal cooperative scheme, that might literally be fining them or harming them in some other way. Um, other ways that people deal with free riders would be ostracizing them. So uh, you know, in the future, not interacting with them, 
and maybe more indirect kind of social sanctions like you know negative gossip about them um it may not they might not even realize in the short term that they're facing any negative uh, effect of being a free rider but in fact negative information could be percolating through you know their the local community uh reducing their chances of having people cooperate with them um in the future so there's a, i think there's a lot of both kind of subtle and less subtle direct and indirect ways um people deal with this problem um, if you, you know, you might be aware of like there's lots of experiments that look at punishment specifically of free riders, and that's kind of an uh, idealization in the lab. But in the real world, people use a variety of techniques uh, to deal with free riders. I think. Mm -hmm. And since you talk, you talk about punishment. There's also third-party punishment. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. people are willing to do that to punish yeah. free riders, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is a really intriguing phenomenon where, um, you know, to make it concrete, like uh, imagine you're a, you know, people have studied this in the lab. So maybe say you are a laboratory participant. You may be told you're going to observe an interaction over the computer between two other people. One of them has 10 bucks to start and they can divide it any way they want to between themselves and another person. And you're watching this through the computer. You don't get to see the faces, but you get to know what happened like with text or something. And then you see the original person doesn't share anything. And now you, who doesn't know any of these people and will never know their identities, are asked, do you want to spend, you're given some money, and you're asked, do you want to spend some of that to punish the person who didn't share? And although, of course, many people are like, no, thanks, I'll, I'll just keep this money, there's a sizable number of people who will spend some money to punish this person who was not nice to a, a third party. And so this kind of third party punishment uh, has attracted a lot of attention because it seems like what you know ricardo what what do you get out of this why are you bothering to punish it seems to have no benefit to you to punish this other person and uh one view of this behavior is that um it, it's because uh our minds or perhaps the norms that inhabit our minds have evolved to create benefits for the the group that we live in it may not benefit you but it benefits the larger community. And that's why you actually just pay a cost. It's never recouped, but the community benefits from it. Um, and that's possible, uh, although my colleagues and I have done a number of studies uh, where we've tried to show that in fact, um, although it may not be rational in the moment for you, Ricardo, to do that, there's this kind of long-term evolutionary rationality that your mind embodies, and, and that's why you choose to punish. It actually would, on average, in ancestral conditions, uh, benefit you to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, since we're also talking about moralization, I mean, when it comes to things like political negotiations, sometimes people tend to moralize things, mm -hmm. the issues a little bit. So could you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, actually, let me, let's, for, before I go into that, let me also just say with the third party punishment, uh, we think the reason people are interested in doing that um, is because although they might it's not consciously accessible if you see somebody in your local area who's behaving badly now they're not treating you poorly right now but they might treat you poorly or your allies poorly in the future so it actually on average would benefit you to change their behavior to make sure that you know they're they're acting well they're acting in your interest again even if in the short term right now there doesn't seem to be any benefit and in contrived laboratory experiments there'll never be any benefit in real-world ancestral settings, uh, there would be a benefit to you uh, to doing that. And that's actually related um, 
to the, the question you ask about like bargaining and moralization. Um, with some of with my colleagues, uh, Tim Ryan and Peter DeSoli, um, we've looked at um, how our moral intuitions can affect our, our willingness to bargain and to make trade-offs and to make uh, and to um, come to, you know essentially reach deals with people on things. And, and the basic idea there is that um, there, there are some things that different different people are trying to establish as you know essentially moral rules for the community to follow. So this is something I think should be a moral rule. So some ones we studied were things like, you know, should the minimum wage be raised or lowered? You know, people might view the minimum wage not as just a purely dollars and cents issue, but they might view it as a moral issue. It's right or wrong that the minimum wage be up or down. Or uh, another thing we studied was things like research based on stem cells. So maybe you just think, oh, you know, the reason we should do that is just because it will lead to medical advances. Other people might think that's a moral issue. Stem cells come um, from fetuses, human fetuses. So we it's beyond just, uh, you know, the outcomes it produces. There's something deeper there, some sort of moral problem. And so um, our hypothesis was that when uh, certain things are people see as a moral issue, that's going to they moralize. It. They make it something that is more than just the immediate you know, costs and benefits at stake. Um, that's going to prevent them from uh, being as willing to, to strike a bargain. So we, to, you know, to study this, we used uh, a different type of econ game. Um, maybe you've heard, play, you know, played this one or heard of it before. It's the ultimate, kind of the classic game called the ultimatum game, right? Um, and so in this game, if you and I are playing it, you might have ten dollars, and you're asked to divide it between yourself and me. You propose a division. If I find that acceptable, great, it goes through. If not, the experimenter essentially burns that money and no one gets anything if I don't find your original proposal acceptable. So we modified that game uh, to study this idea of how our moral intuitions might interfere with meeting in the middle, basically. Um, and we asked people to play this, this game in a similar uh, version of this game, uh, a couple different varieties of it, while also, uh, and they knew this was fiction, we asked them to imagine while you're bargaining over this, you're really not just bargaining over dollars, you're bargaining over a political policy. So if you and I were uh, participants in this study, we might be bargaining as, we might we're asked to imagine ourselves as politicians, bargaining over say, what the minimum wage policy is gonna be. And what we did was we really paired people up who disagreed. So maybe you're in favor of raising the minimum wage and I'm in favor of lowering the minimum wage. And we have to bargain over exactly how much it should be raised or lowered. And of course, again, they, they were aware there's no actual policy at stake. This is just an experiment, but there's this moral frame on top of the real monetary bargain they're engaging in. And what we found was that if you viewed your position on the minimum wage, uh, it, should be, it should be greater. If you viewed that as a moral issue, you bargained harder. You requested more of the dollar in your favor and were less willing to let me um, have, have that dollar. And so the, the upshot then of that would be when people view these things as moral issues, they bargain harder and that makes it more difficult for the pair of us, uh, all else equal, to arrive at a, at a fair, or not a fair, but a uh, mutually agreeable division of the of the actual money. So sometimes uh, it, it, people were losing out on real cash because of their moral intuitions were interfering with their ability to, to strike this deal. Now, of course, in the real world, um, there's actually these, these real issues are at stake. 
which makes it, I think, if anything else, it should amplify this effect because it's not just a hypothetical layered on top of money, but real benefits, real, not real benefits, but real uh, things like the actual minimum wage or the actual rules about government funding of stem cell research. Mm -hmm. So you've already introduced there an approach that comes from behavioral economics when you mm -hmm. mentioned the ultimatum game and so on. Um, before we move on to another one of your research topics, could you tell us what's the relationship, if any, between evolutionary psychology and behavioral economics? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of overlap. So, um, so behavioral economics broadly is trying to integrate uh, what we know about psychology to understand various types of economic behavior. So, you know, for instance, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work on using psychological insights to understand economic decision making. Uh, whereas evolutionary psychology, um, a lot of us are actually interested in the same kinds of questions. How can we use uh, psychology, what we know about psychology, to understand how people make decisions. I think one of, one of the differences is that um, evolutionary psychologists try to bring an additional uh, theoretical angle, which is to ask, what would the origins of psychological mechanisms be? Because that allows us to uncover ones that may have lain hidden or to kind of reorient how we think about uh, mechanisms that people have already discovered. And part of this would, I think one of the, um, one of the big, uh, maybe to make the distinction a little bit too coarse, but would be that if a, a standard behavioral economist might view the way we, the, the way the mind actually works as just a little bit blinkered, not doesn't function as well as it could because you know we don't have enough neurons or something. Uh, whereas evolutionary psychologists tend to be interested in what we call ecological rationality. Our minds might not be uh, fine-tuned for the modern environment. But they are fine-tuned for ancestral environments. So something that looks weird or aberrant in a modern environment is not just because we're dumb or blinkered, but because what's going on is well-crafted mechanisms that were made for something else are now being put in a strange situation. So like one, one you know, very straightforward example of this would be um, you know, delicious chocolate fudge cake. There was no such thing of that like in, in the ancestral past, like huge packets, endless packets of fat and processed uh, you know, flour and sugar. That was just not something we could get hundreds of thousands of years ago. So our taste mechanisms, you know, they're not designed to uh, withstand that temptation basically. Uh, and so that causes uh, many of us, including myself, to you know, overeat tasty sweets that are not necessarily good for us because we have an ancestral mind dealing with a modern environment that overproduces uh, you know, rich, salty, fatty, carb-loaded packets that we can just endlessly consume. In that case, we are talking about supernormal stimuli. Right, yeah. Yeah, that would be, that would be an example of supernormal stimuli. And I think not, in all, some cases, it's just kind of a mismatch between what our current environment has and what uh, our mind is made for. Like in the political sphere, it's hard, our minds can't really fathom a society made up of 300 million people or, or something like that, right? Our minds are designed for a society that contains tens of people uh, on, the, on that rough order instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's now talk about partisanship that is another <laughs> one of your research topics. 
Is there a coalitional psychology behind partisanship that we can understand through an evolutionary lens? Yeah, I think uh, one of the big insights, and this draws on work of John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, is, and it goes, it's, it goes back to what you know, how do, what are the ways our minds are actually designed to work? Um, so one one issue with is that assembling a group. So this is this is more general than political parties. This kind of applies to groups, many groups of many types. But political parties would be one very important modern example of this. Um, uh, assembling a group of people to do something useful is very difficult, especially as the number of people gets bigger and bigger, right? Like if the two of us are trying to coordinate on something, it's relatively straightforward. I have one mind, there's a lot of stuff in there. You have one mind, there's a lot of stuff in there. But we can, to some degree, coordinate, we can talk. But now imagine if we add a third person. Now we all have to kind of figure out what we're going to do to achieve some joint project. If we involve a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh person, all of us being on the same page gets ever more and more complicated uh, to make happen, to make effective. Okay, so that's kind of step one of this argument. The second step is, if we do manage to make that happen, if we get together 10, 20, 30 people, make something and actually do something useful as a group, now we can look around, we can think, or at least implicitly our minds are realizing the, we can actually do this. We can work effectively as a group. What that means is uh, we might want to keep this group together, even though we might not know what we're going to do with this group right now. So this is what uh, Tubi and Cosmides call an amplification coalition. It's kind of a group just waiting around in our minds to be amplified, to be ready to go when one of us actually has a project worth, uh, worth doing. Uh, and so this would explain things like, uh, why political parties, they're not necessarily always driven by like a clear, coherent policy agenda, especially over the long term, right? Policy agendas often change over time, but the party keeps going regardless. Like in, the, in America, uh, the two uh, major national parties have been around for a long time, and their specific platforms have changed quite a lot over the years, but they are groups uh, that exist. And so they're beneficial to keep together because a group that big and that powerful is very difficult to assemble de novo from the ground up. And so it's very useful for us uh, to keep these groups around once they're formed. And then the upshot of that politically is that people who view themselves as, say, you know, in America, like a, as a member of the Democratic Party, would be invested in that group's you know, continuity and survival over the long term even to some degree independent of agreeing point by point with the party's platform. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another very interesting phenomenon that we find in modern politics, and particularly when we're talking about political parties, is that uh, people tend to pressure mm -hmm. uh, in group members to vote. And yeah. voting does not bring any direct benefits let's say it's only further down the line that it's connected with some yeah. with some policies for example so why do people do that why do people pressure in yeah. groups to vote are, are by voting are people signaling something that is important to the group for yeah great question there's a lot of really interesting things kind of swirling around there actually so let me let me first point out like there's a couple there's two, uh, at least one major puzzle to voting in, um, in a mass society, 
and you were alluding to this, which is, so if we have a society of millions of people and we're voting, like in the US, we vote for president. Now we have the electoral college system, but if we voted just through a pure popular election, millions of people are voting. What does that mean for your individual vote? Well, it means that almost invariably, because there's not gonna be a tie or anything close to a tie, no individual person has any kind of uh, instrumental incentive to go to the polls, right? It takes time, it takes energy to drive and to get in line and to wait and to cast your vote. And it also takes energy and time to become informed about who to vote for. And so this is kind of an enduring problem in political science. Why do people vote then when at least in large elections, mass elections, votes are essentially meaningless? And then what you mentioned is one possible reason people do this is social pressure. Other people are invested in getting you out to the polls and will pressure you uh, to do so in various ways, just like free riders, some maybe indirect, some fairly direct, like telling you you're not gonna be your friend anymore if you don't go and vote. Certainly that well, things like that happened a lot in America over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, let's see, so with, with that kind of, with this idea of social pressure, getting people to vote, um, at least in American politics, there's this kind of tradition of thinking that's a civic duty element. The reason I should vote, the reason you might pressure me to vote is we need to be good citizens. It's part of our duty as citizens of this country to go out and vote. And I think that's probably part of the story, but as you, as you mentioned, um, with my colleagues, uh, Michael Peterson, uh, Tess Robertson, and some other folks, we've been looking at an additional angle, which is that people might be at least in, as invested in pressuring others to vote, not because they're concerned with civic duty, but they're concerned with their party and their party's success. And that goes back to the, the fact that these parties are big beneficial groups, and that kind of group is difficult to achieve. So parties compared to other types of looser, more ephemeral political groups are an especially important vector uh, for, you know, for people to uh, want to you know, pressure other people to keep that party going. So what we find is that we've done a couple of different studies. Um, some studies involve just looking out in the world and seeing, okay, what do people who are actual party members versus independents do? And what we see is that in, the, in an American context, at least, party members are more likely to apply social pressure to just their in-party, primarily just in-party members. They wanna tell their in-party people, you gotta go vote. If they're thinking about out-party people, they're not quite as, in, they're not so interested in that. Independents are a little more even-handed. And we've also done some experiments that also kind of replicate this, um, manipulating how much partisanship people feel and, and find similar kinds of patterns. Mm -hmm. So in your work, you talk about two different kinds of voting, selfish and cooperative mm -hmm. voting. What's the difference there? Yeah, uh, so this is work with uh, Peter DeSoli and a couple other co uh, colleagues of ours. And um, so this work was trying to uh, engage with two very different strands of ways researchers have thought about voting. So people in political science who come from uh, an economic perspective, political economists often just assume that the main reason, the only reason that people choose what policies to vote for, what candidates to vote for is purely based on their pocketbook. So are you going to make more or less money if this candidate gets elected, if this policy is put in place? And surely, you know, well, we'll get to that. So that's one, that's one perspective. 
on how people make political decisions. Another perspective, sometimes called the sociotropic perspective, um, is that people are concerned uh, with not their own welfare under a given policy or given candidate, but how do other people do? So some people say people almost never care about their own pocketbook. They vote based on how this candidate will help the country at large or help other people at large. So these are two very different perspectives that are kind of uh, sometimes don't talk to each other. And both of them have lots of interesting research behind them. What we wanted to do was to uh, create a, a very simple laboratory study where we could directly see in a very easy way, basically, how much, to what extent do people vote purely based on their self-interest? To what extent do people vote based on the interest of others when they have to sacrifice in order to help those other people? And this actually, so this kind of comes indirectly back to the welfare trade-off uh, idea too. So in these studies, um, it was another econ game. Um, we have people come and they play a game. There'd be 10 people in a group, six people in a, six people in the majority, and then four people in the minority. So if the six people all voted together, they were guaranteed to pass whatever policy those six people preferred, regardless of what, other, what the minority preferred. And they were voting between two very simple policies, one of which would give um, more money to the majority and less money to the minority, and the other a more even split uh, between the minority and the majority. So perhaps not surprisingly, People who are the minority, of course, they vote for the one that favors them because that's both group, everyone in the group is the best off under that one and they're the best off under that one. So the real action is when we can very easily observe voting choices and we know exactly what, what material incentives are at stake for the majority and how that would affect the minority, we can ask what do people in the majority actually vote for? And there, um, we were not surprised, but it kind of, it is neither, not really consistent with either the pure political economy or the pure sociotropic voting perspective. We found a mix of, of voters. So if you were in the majority, well, some people in the majority voted for their own benefit. I vote for the thing that just gives me the most money. And then other people will vote for uh, the policy that hurts them directly, but indirectly ends up helping the minority. So we found a mixture of, of cooperative and selfish voting. So it doesn't seem to be that it's purely just uh, everyone is out to vote for their own pocketbook, nor is it the case that people ignore their own pocketbook. Some pe you know, people will also keep that in mind. And we ran a couple of versions of these where, and not surprisingly, given that in our first study, we found a mixture of people voting for themselves or for others. If you make the benefits to yourself bigger, People are more, you know, more people vote to help themselves. If you make the benefits to yourself smaller, then more people are going to help uh, the minority at the expense of themselves. So we find a mixture of, of cooperative and selfish voting. That's the kind of the upshot of that series of studies. Mm -hmm. And do we know why people abstain from voting? And would an evolutionary perspective also apply to that question? Mm, good question. Why people abstain from voting? So part of it could be means end calculation um, that you see that you uh, that your vote may not have a huge effect. Although I think our minds are not, again, I don't think our minds are very particularly well equipped to understand million person elections. Um, that's not, that's a question I haven't done much direct research on. Um, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll punt on, on that question about why exactly people abstain from voting. I think big picture, of course, um, 
you know, the more we can understand how our minds work, the more we're going to know why is it that people choose not to become involved in, in the voting process. But I, I have not done too much work on why people abstain. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so I have one last topic that I would like to ask you about. We've already talked about welfare and the welfare state. Mm -hmm. What about economic redistribution? What are the instances where people support or are against economic yeah. redistribution? So, so some of the things we've already talked about, like when people, if I see people as in need, then um, uh, I'm more likely to feel compassion and then therefore support welfare for them. And then we've, you know, we've fractionated need in a couple different ways. Um, other types of uh, situations that cause people to be more or less supportive of welfare comes back to the more general idea of, of free riding that we've talked about as well. So um, uh, welfare systems are one example of a kind of public good or collective action type system. Um, and so if you are perceived or if I'm perceived as not uh, engaging in the amount of contributions to the system I should be, then people might be less willing uh, to support me in my time of need. So, for instance, like um, uh, my, my colleague Michael Peterson has done a lot of work on the deservingness heuristic, along with other people as well. And basically, basic idea being when it comes to uh, standard kind of social welfare programs, if you are seen as being you know, overly lazy, not interested in finding work, then uh, people are less likely to support uh, a person like you getting access to social welfare. Um, now, actually, but more recently, there's also interesting research about that people might distinguish between help that's kind of job, you know, you've lost your job, I'm helping you with your income, versus helping you with medical expenses. People seem to distinguish um, health and medicine from other types of social welfare, probably because ancestrally, uh, you know, we have some control over how much effort we put in to say foraging and then sharing what we forage with other people. But we don't have that same kind of control over whether we get ill. You know, illness is going to spread through a community and it's really, you can't make the same kind of effort-based decisions about whether or not you get ill. So people are actually a little, are less uh, concerned with deservingness directly uh, for whether they support things like medical welfare as opposed to, say, job loss welfare. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. But, I mean, that's how people think about economic redistribution. But does economic redistribution increase economic efficiency? Mm. Good. Yeah, good question. So. Um, so I'm definitely not an economist, so I can't say whether in the macro economy that is, uh, that is true. Although um, my colleagues and I, Peter Desholi and Alex Shaw, uh, we've done some studies that show how people's minds are willing to engage in, in redistribution that can actually increase, uh, at least in, the, in a small scale society, um, efficiency. And the basic intuition here is that there are lots of kind of entrepreneurial things you could do, you know, risks you could take that have a really high payoff, but also a potential for loss, right? So if I do it and it's successful, we're, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good, I'm really flush, but it could fail altogether. And you probably face situations like that, our friend over there and our friend over there probably face situations like that. Now, if we are a group of people who can all monitor each other and all agree that we are going to socialize essentially to share uh, whatever happens from all of our decisions, 
then we might all be willing to take this risky chance. I take the risk, you take the risk, they both take the risk. Um, and then if some of us, of course, are going to fail, but on average, we're going to do better than if we'd all opted out and gone with some very kind of small, sure thing kind of payoff. So, you know, one example might be um, in, the, in the modern world, things like getting an advanced degree. Like advanced degrees take, you know, a, you know, maybe nearly a decade between getting a PhD and a postdoc and whatever before you get an actual job in a university. That's a lot of time lag between when you choose to specialize in some field and when you actually end up in a career where you're contributing anything. Um, so that's kind of a big risk, but it can pay off if you're successful. So you could imagine uh, that uh, budding you know, scholars might, uh, might create a pact that we're all gonna socialize our, um, our earnings and you know, 10 years hence. And some of us are gonna you know, do, end up doing really well, probably for random reasons, other of us are not gonna do as well. And so if we all agree to do that and can enforce that agreement, we're all better off in the end. So this kind of, so redistribution can actually increase our efficiency. Now the problem there would be of course, back to this issue of free riders. If you set up a system like this and I join and I'm like, okay, these guys are gonna do a bunch of hard work for 10 years. I'm just gonna sit back and relax. That's a big problem. Um, and so that's, you know, that's why in, in larger societies, it can prob it's probably difficult to sustain these kind of redistribution systems because people are very sensitive to this idea of folks slacking off, not doing their fair share. Um, but if you, you know, if you can create a situation where people know that there, uh, you know, there's not going to be free riders, that's what we, in our laboratory games that we were able to create situations like this, people will invest um, in these high stakes, but potentially uh, projects that might fail. So does that, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it makes sense. It makes sense. Anything you would like to add? I mean, in terms of uh, the kinds of insights we can get from evolutionary psychology when applied to political science or a political context. Yeah. So, um, so the, I think big picture, what what really excites me about evolutionary psychology um, is the, the this idea that. Uh, there's there's an environment, including our social environment, and our minds kind of are evolved to kind of fit right in with that environment. You know, they they take on they embody knowledge and properties of the environments we evolved within. Um, I think it's a really compelling idea, and it explains a lot about how our our kind of Stone Age minds, as people often say, uh, work. We, you know, our minds evolved in these past environments, and they fit them really well. And so when we want to understand um, big picture, macro things like politics, political economics, things like that, um, evolutionary psychology can help fill a gap between uh, what, what we see big picture and what are people doing on the ground. Because ultimately, it's our actual minds that determine what our citizens and what our politicians choose to do. So when we understand that our minds fit intimately with environments we no longer really inhabit, I think that to me, that's the biggest insight into helping bridge um, from kind of evolutionary psychology to, to political science, seeing that there's why there could be a gap between our evolved intuitions and the societies we now inhabit. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So Dr. Dalton, just before we go, are there any good places on the internet where people can find your work? Yeah, uh, just go to andrewdelton.com. 
or just Google me. Um, and pretty quickly, you can come to my andrewdelton.com is my homepage, and it has all of my articles up for free. Um, and if for some reason that's not working for you, you can just email me anything. I'm always happy uh, to share any article I've ever published uh, with anyone at any time throughout the world. So uh, feel free to get in touch. Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of the interview and Dr. Delton. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for accepting, accepting the invitation. Thank you, Ricardo. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to talk to you too. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga Larsen. Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.